0: We are in Matthew 6 and it looks to me like Matthew 6 in this sermon is really talking about some of the roadblocks that Christians face in their spiritual growth and development and uh, the first of those is doing what they do to be seen by men to try to impress and gain attention rather than to do it sincerely for the Lord. It's amazing how Satan can corrupt even the most spiritual of acts. You would think giving alms and praying and fasting would always be righteous acts that would draw you closer to God, but they can even be things that are done for publicity. And so he's really dealing with that. But in the course of that, he gives a model as to how to pray. Now, his model, in part, is to show that prayer uh, is, is not to be some impressive theatrical display. You know, he's saying you don't need to have these meaningless repetitions like the Gentiles who think they'll be heard for their many words. It's not that we had the right quantity of, of words. It, prayer needs to be sincere, humble expression of ourselves to God. And his model really shows us some of the things that we ought to really think about as we pray. He starts out um by by addressing the prayer to our father who is in heaven that's an e- interesting way of addressing god because when you think about the father standpoint what is that what what does that emphasize
1: nearness
0: nearness and when you think about who is in heaven what does that emphasize justice just. farness <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We are both invited to be close to God and to see him as our father, but we must maintain the proper respect and reverence for him that we would for our father who is in heaven. And so that really makes us think about both aspects of that. Um, I think probably in our day, it's easier for, easier for us to feel the fatherhood than the sense that, than to sense the in-heavenness. Think our our tendency sometimes is not to have the respect for God that we should and to really reflect on who we're speaking to as we pray but both of those are essential and then he has really six requests in this prayer and the first three deal with God's agenda God's interests it's important that we first focus on the Lord and his honor and his kingdom, his purpose, before we focus on the, our needs for ourselves. Because that's really what our priority ought to be when we pray. So often we think about praying to get our own way. Praying to vindicate ourselves, to fulfill our desires, to solve our problems. And the thing that we ought to want most is for God's will to be done. For his rule to be advanced. That, that, that ought to be the thing that, that really we're thinking about first. And so he says, hallowed be your name. You know, we have this strong desire that God's name be reverenced, that the world respect and worship him. Um, When it says hallowed be your name, he's not just saying the word we use to call God. He's saying God's person should be held in high honor. May May his person, his being, his nature be honored and respected and and that ought to be one of the things that we most want is for God to be glorified like he ought to be comments and thoughts on verse 9 it's
1: kinda interesting just growing up Methodist we use this prayer a lot as a responsive kinda thing and you just trip over that and don't even think about the hallelujah it's part of the first part it's not like a separate it's not an actual request
0: yes and clearly jesus is not trying to give us a formula to recite but is trying to sort of outline the concerns that we ought to have and it is a shame when this prayer becomes just a mechanical ritual it's a shame when our prayers become mechanical rituals as it's awfully easy for them to do you know you can say the words but not mean them. and uh words like this that we speak to god ought to be very meaningful you know he's praying that your kingdom come uh, that that god's kingship be advanced now i don't have a strong concern as to whether or not uh, we're thinking of this as as uh, jesus praying that, that the kingdom would be established in the idea of Jesus going back up to the throne of God and, and, and beginning his reign as king, because there's a sense in which his kingdom was coming in that. Or if he's simply saying, may your rule, may your dominion grow and prevail. May it come more and more. I think either of those senses is, is appropriate for those wording. I, if somebody wants to pray this today, I think if they pray it in the sense that we want his kingship to, to advance and to grow, then that would be appropriate. But it's possible that what he originally intended was the idea of him becoming king. Anybody got something you want to say about that? And your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, in so many ways, what's done in heaven should be the pattern for us here. And you think about, how is God's will done in heaven?
1: Perfectly, immediately, without exception.
0: I think about like the angels that are God's messengers, God's servants. You know, when God orders the angels to do something, do you suppose they uh, question it or, you know, refuse certain parts of it or or delay? I mean, they'd be very quick and complete and enthusiastic in fulfilling God's will. That's the way we want his will to be done here. Of course, how could I pray for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven if I'm personally rebelling against his will? You know that'd be a very hypocritical prayer, really. If I can pray this honestly, I'm making a commitment to f- fulfill God's will in my own life. That's all. Again, it ought to be what we want. We want God's purpose. We want His will to be done. But that is a very weighty thing to pray and to think about. So those are are the requests, you know, related to the Lord Himself, and and if we would begin our prayers thinking about. God's interest and agenda, it would be good. He then turns to prayers for ourselves, which are also simple prayers. Give us this day our daily bread. There's some debate about what the this day means. But however it is, we're just asking God to provide for our needs physically. I think it's harder for us to sense our dependence on God for our bread when our cupboards are so well stocked. You know, we're reading books on losing weight, not surviving starvation, you know? And so it's easy for us maybe not to see that God is the source of those things. But I think the person who's really God-centered recognizes that even the ability to have daily bread, there's a whole lot of things that could take that away from us. We need to pray to God for that. And then praying for forgiveness. forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors so what if I say I won't forgive you what will God say won't
1: you.
0: you know I mean when I when I refuse forgiveness then I am damning myself to be unforgiven uh, so so he he's not praying that God forgive and we you know retain the forgiveness But certainly we need forgiveness. Our debts are unpayable. We desperately need God's forgiveness and one step more. Do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. We want not only to be forgiven of our sins but protected from those things that would lead us away from God and would destroy our relationship with him. We depend on God to avoid sin in our lives. So We pray for forgiveness for yesterday, for the provision for today and for protection and temptation tomorrow. You know, but simple thoughts focused on our basic needs and especially on our needs to be right with God. I think this is just a really, wow, it's really amazing how much Jesus can say in few words. really amazing that he was able to zero in on perhaps the most central elements of prayer to God. I think if we had had to give a model prayer, we'd have never touched anywhere close to this. You know, we'd have been 500 times longer and still not said as much. You know, Jesus has such an ability to say so much in so few words. It's a really impressive prayer. Thoughts and comments? Well, 14 and 15 just emphasize again our need to forgive in order to Be forgiven, and then he moves on to fasting. And you know, it looks like there were times when they fasted, where they took deliberate steps to make sure other people knew they were fasting. You know, sometimes uh, you can imagine somebody who was more interested in looking like he was fasting than even in the fast itself, because it it makes you seem, you know, spiritual. But in everything we do for the Lord, we have to not think about what impression am I making, but we have to just do it for the Lord. I think that's a challenge. I think it's so easy for us to do something for God, but we're looking around to see who noticed. And we're thinking around to imagine who noticed and what they think of us. And it just really corrupts the whole idea. I think we've just got to focus so much on God, we just kind of don't even think about the audience, um, because it, it just really, you know. I mean, he says if you get people's attention, your, you know, payment is received in full. You know, there's no more reward we'll get. If that's what we're going for, and we get it, then then God considers the transaction already uh, taken care of. So. You know, in in everything we do for the Lord, we just got to be really concentrated on honoring Him. And it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about our great spiritual feats. We are nothing before God. Comments and thoughts on all that?
1: Is there a significance to... Okay, we have these three sections when you give, when you pray, and whenever you fast? Does the, is the whenever that difference any...
0: I hadn't thought about it, maybe, because fasting would not have been as um, as much of a given.
1: It's it's not exactly optional, but it's less common, or...
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we're to pray without ceasing, and we're to uh, be generous you know, at all times, is probably not in the same category of just a biblical requirement. I think it's more a biblical option. But it is something that you could easily draw attention to yourself with and make an impression, you know, because, wow, I mean, fasting, that's, that's cool. That, <laughs> you really did something there, you know. And, and we like to display the things that seem to take, you know, space special effort and special something i don't know if it's if it's above and beyond then we want to make sure there's some way people will find out
1: which if fasting was more of
0: an optional thing then that would be even more exactly looking that do that too even if it's not totally you know required exactly yeah to just you know i mean do we drop hints about you know, certain spiritual disciplines in our lives, whatever they may be, because we'd like for people to to know how good we really are. Uh, it, it's a tough thing, because I don't think it's necessary that we never be open about our relationship with God. Paul was at times, and he didn't hesitate to present himself as a model sometimes. But when Paul presented himself as a model, it wasn't to try to get attention. It wasn't to try to get them to glorify him. It was to try to help them by giving them a pattern. So there's times to be open. we got to be really honest with our motive. Are, are we saying this really? Because we just like everybody to know how well we did. Or are we doing this in this way, in this public way? Way and this attention getting way, you know. I mean, you, you know how a kid is. You know, a little kid is sometimes affected by knowing he's got an audience. <laughs> and some kids won't perform when they got an audience, but some kids will ham it up. Once they see they got an audience, boy, they're going to go for it. You know, and with a little kid that's cute. But, but, I mean, wow, is that the way we are? Are we that spiritually mature? I think that's a real danger anything else do to to. Well,
1: sometimes it's hard because sometimes like you're genuinely excited that
0: like I don't know you get to study with this friend and you want to tell somebody about it or something like that and that's not bad not bad but at all but it could be mixed motives sometimes yeah it's not bad at all to be excited and to be eager to share those things for the right reasons it's it's you know I mean it's 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 really what our motive is and why we do that, um, and and maybe maybe some things lend themselves even more to self glorification. I mean, you know, it's one thing to want to tell somebody about you know a study you're excited about having. It's another thing to tell somebody, you know. I invited forty-eight people last week, you know, to study with me or whatever. You know, I mean, some of those things get to be, uh, why were you counting? Or, you know, um, but but that's tempting. You know, it's it's tempting to go from the excitement of of what what the Lord is blessing us with doing, to trying to drop statements in there that really make us look better. And and can I count the ones that? the person didn't show up and you know <laughs> what if you start thinking like that well you know well, why are you thinking like that you know well how impressive can I sound you know and still be honest you know or whatever uh, I just I think all of those things are are more of a challenge for more of us than what we admit sometimes anything else Let's, uh,
1: what was involved with the fasting in, in the sense of, I guess, or what would it mean for us today?
0: Okay, good questions. Um, you know, we're not given just a whole lot of instructions about fasting. Fasting is to do without food. Um, it, it, there's not a lot of examples, but the examples we have would connect fasting sometimes with like repentance for sins and and confession and, and pleading for God's mercy. There was that annual commanded fast on the Day of Atonement where they were to afflict their souls and not eat as they remembered their sins. So sometimes fasting is associated with sin and repentance and confession and prayer. And then sometimes fasting seems to have been associated with like special periods of time where we're, we're talking to God and requesting his blessing. Like in Acts 13, they were fasting when the Holy Spirit said to separate Barnabas and Saul, and they prayed and fasted as they sent them out on that first missionary journey. In Acts 14:23, 23, uh, they were fasting in connection with the appointment of elders in the churches. So, I mean, I take those as times when they would especially concentrate on praying to God and maybe take the the time and attention they'd be spending on food and really directed towards seeking God's help and blessing. I think that would be perfectly appropriate. I don't know that churches do this like they should or could, but, I mean, I think it'd be very appropriate, especially when churches are appointing elders, I suspect, to you know, have a, a day where, at least where we, we fasted, you know, or at least encourage brethren who could to fast and pray would probably be a really good thing, maybe even when we're sending them out, and things like that. I, I think you know, we, we might tend to almost think of that as being illegitimate. I, I think sometimes we think of fasting it has to only be individual. But those were collective fasts in Acts 13 and 14, and really, uh, it depends on the text you use, some debate about a couple passages, but may have been the only references to fasting from the book of Acts on in, in the
1: because yes. I know that some people they've talked about you know, uh, they are not fasting necessarily from food, but they, you know, it's, it's a television fast. Instead of watching television, they're going to give that up and you know do something with spiritual worth or, or whatever. Using that concept, then you know, and I remember we were talking about our our, our Catholic friends and. So you've got the whole season of Lent and, and giving, up, giving up meat on Fridays or throughout the whole season or giving up this and that. And they view that as a type of fasting.
0: It's probably not, uh, I don't know that it's a legitimate use of the word. I mean, to fast from chocolate or fast from TV doesn't seem like what they were talking about with fasting. I'm not necessarily against the concept of, um, you know, sacrificing something for a spiritually valuable purpose. Somebody's sacrificing TV for a month so that they can give that time to Bible study and prayer or something like that. That might be a very good thing. You know, if somebody who's giving up chocolate so they could take that money and use it for somebody who needed it. That might be a very good thing. I don't think fasting would be the term for it. You know, maybe there would be some value in, you know, just learning discipline, but, you know, I think Colossians 2 would put some question marks on, you know, how much just, you know, depriving ourselves of something really has spiritual benefit for us. You know maybe we can learn some self control with that, but I think sometimes people m- misunderstand and imagine that if we fast or deprive ourselves of something else, that somehow that's going to make God you know more responsive to our prayers or you know if I fast and pray now now he's gotta he's gotta you know do what I say or whatever. I don't think we ought to think about that way. I mean, I think the fasting was more maybe. Um, taking the food out of the way to give more concentration to seeking the Lord, but not like, man, you you fast three days and you pray, that's a powerful prayer. I think we way too overemphasize the idea of prayer's power. I mean, it's almost like what Jesus said about the faith as a mustard seed. It's not that you have so much faith. It's that even a little faith in such a great God will move mountains. It's not that you you prayed such a powerful prayer and and you know you did this and that and the other thing. It just made your prayer so strong. Mm-hmm. It's that you prayed humbly to such a strong God. So I think sometimes we get the emphasis on what we're doing instead of on what the Lord's doing. So fasting to me is more seeking the Lord, not something that scores us more brownie points and maybe God will really do what I ask Him this time. You know that's that's wow that's such a human-centered <clears throat> idea of prayer. Other thoughts? Well, he he moves on to another area of real um, you know I think um, a stumbling block a, a hindrance for us in our spiritual development, and that's you know our relationship to material things. Uh, and you know I don't know when we're when we're looking at um hindrances to our spiritual growth. I suspect, you know, pride and and greed are not the two that come at the top of our list most of the time. But they may be the two that really affect us most strongly. Um, and and I think we'll see that as we look at what he says here uh, about greed. How about 19 to 24? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Those are pretty strong statements. And, uh, you know, I think we need to reflect on them. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Um, Don't spend your life. Don't focus on your physical investments you know we would maybe disagree with the prosperity preachers on TV but we may act like they do you know focused on this world prosperity that, that shouldn't be our focus that's not our life that's not what we need to to be thinking about for one thing it's not very secure you know there's natural factors like moth and rust there's uh, you know human factors like thieves you don't have anything very secure when you store up for yourselves treasures here. But rather he says, you know, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You know, because you they, there's nothing that can happen to those treasures, they're, they're unassailable. You know, and as we invest in the Lord, and invest in his will, and his um, you know, cause, we're storing up treasures that cannot be affected by moth or rust or thieves or whatever. Um, and, and, And I think verse 21 really nails this down. Your heart will always follow your treasure. What you look at is where you go. And so if you are investing most of your time and attention and energy and money in this life stuff, your heart will be here too. It's unavoidable. We want to pull off this act where we invest heavily in this life, but we preserve our heart for the Lord. And it does not work that way. We get attached. You know, what we treasure the most ultimately totally determines our values and and our attitudes. and, And we're just going to drift toward where our treasure is. And, 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 and that is to say what we treasure the most, what we value the most, what we invest ourselves in the most. If you value honor the most, then you're going to be controlled by ambition. If you value money the most, then you'll be controlled by greed. If you value pleasure the most, then it's self-indulgence. Whatever it is that you treasure, that's where your heart's going to be. You grow attached to what you treasure. This is not an absolute prohibition of private property. Though, I think we have developed this idea that, you know, we should start with that. I think we need to to reevaluate our private property. There's lots of examples of selling it in the Bible. But, you know, we're certainly you know, told even to work and to uh, be able to be hospitable and to be able to give to others. We're told to provide for our relatives. Uh, The scriptures even commend in terms of like the ant making provision for the future. Um, And and the scriptures encourage us to enjoy the gifts that our Creator gives us. But we have to think think about how we're doing that. You know, enjoying the blessings God's giving is not the same as pursuing those as our highest goal. You know, when we enjoy the Creator's blessings, we ought to be reflecting on the Creator. We get to where it's the blessings we want, never mind who gave them to us, and that's not the right spirit. So there is a balance, but But I think especially verse 21. You know, what we're mostly investing ourselves in. That's where our heart will be. Thoughts and comments on 19 to 21. 22 and 23 are the same idea. And almost answering an objection, well, why can't I have treasure both places? You know, I want to treasure up in this life and in heaven too. (laughs) You know... Because, man, it's, it's, I want, I want both, the best of both worlds. Well, he says double vision is not a good thing. You know, your eye's the lamp of the body, and you've got to have clear, single vision. Otherwise, your life is full of darkness. And I think that's the idea of this eye, eye being clear. It's the I being sincere. It's being single-focused. And verse 24 really nails that down. You know, because behind the two-treasure, two-vision thing is two masters. And that's the reason you can't do that. You try to invest two ways. You try to look two directions. There are opposite ways and directions. And sooner or later, there's going to come a contradiction. And then what do you do? You know, you're pulled apart. We want to pull off this balancing act, but it's not a balancing act. You know, they're in contradiction with each other. Do we really love God? Is He our master, or is this life our master? You know, we say we've chosen God, but but in our daily life, what determines our priorities and our choices? Is it is it this lifestyle? Is it money? Is it career? Is it wealth building? You know... just you just think about you think about jesus how much he gave up riches and how much he served you think about the examples of the early christians how much they gave not not just financially but including that but they gave themselves and they they prioritized the needs of their brethren and, and you look at people like paul who who gave up A promising career and so many worldly advantages and let himself suffer. I mean, the examples we have in the first century, and even the examples we have through the Old Testament many times, are of people who were not attached to their um, comforts and to their position. And and, and these things should not be important to us, but it's so hard for them not to be, and it's especially hard as affluent as we are. It's just, you know, without realizing it, It's easy to have so much invested in this life. And then what do you do? You know, you you invest all this time and attention and interest in this life stuff. It's just so, you just can't break away from that like that. You know, I was talking uh, just recently with a guy who's invested a long time in not a good relationship with a girl. And it's like, man, to pull out now You've, you've had all these years wasted you've had all this investment and you got all this attachment and and it's it's the same thing with material things you get this investment this attachment so I think you know we really do have to to focus seriously on this for Jesus to spend so much time in this key sermon on the danger of our wrong attitude toward Toward this life and toward money means it's a really dangerous thing, and much more for us with the affluence we have. Thoughts and comments.
1: You alluded to it a few times, but you know, the giving up of self. I think is probably you know obviously at the root of that. You know, but but you know I can even I can even fool myself maybe into giving up my money, or maybe giving up my time. But it's still all about me, and I'm still in it for me, and I think it can't be about me. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's the, that's the fundamental thing, and it really, aren't both of these things the pride and the greed. It's all me-centered. It's, it's all unwilling to give the throne over to the Lord. That is so hard. <laughs> Why are we so determined to, you know, seek for ourselves? When that always it will end up in bankruptcy. The only true treasure is the treasure invested now. Other thoughts? Well, there's the other side of this. I mean, nineteen twenty-four is more talking about the positive, you know, treasuring up and, and investing and and focusing on but then there's the the anxieties. You know, what if I lose this? And what am I going to do to to get that? And and that's another form of materialism. It may not seem like it because it's not so much I'm trying to get it as I'm trying to keep from losing it or I'm trying to figure out where my necessities are going to come from. It seems a little more legitimate. But look at it. 25 to 34. For
1: this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. Is life. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink? For well, what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own.
0: Well, he's telling us not to be worried about physical things physical needs what are some reasons that he gives us for that you can't add a single hour to your life by doing that so it really doesn't help does it you can't add a single inch onto your lifespan can't worry yourself a day older an inch taller or anything like that so it doesn't really help what else does he say
1: um That food does not make the life and clothing doesn't make the body.
0: Who gave us our body? And who gave us our life? Aren't those much greater gifts than the food and the clothing? If He gave us our life and our body, can't we trust Him for the food to sustain it and the clothing to warm it? You know, it's like, wow. You know, He's given us so much and then... Right at the very end, we're going to lose our trust and faith in him then? (laughs) You know? I think what he's already done is a pretty good proof we can trust him. It's the same parallel to salvation. Like, he's already given Jesus, so you should trust him to
1: take you the rest of the way. Well, yeah,
0: Romans 5. Exactly. That's the point he makes in 9 and 10. That God in bringing us from enmity to friendship by the sacrifice of his son will surely move us from friendship to eternal salvation by the life of his son. What else does he say to show us why we shouldn't worry about physical things?
1: God provides for animals and plants and you're worth more than those animals and plants so he's going to take care of you too
0: absolutely their creator is your father he takes care of them and you are clearly worth more than they are this should settle the question as to which is worth more than men or the animals um, but wow yeah, God has taken care of them God, God shows such mercy even to the lower forms of creation, and they don't understand about crop rotation and fertilization and you know herbicides and, and uh, irrigation and all that sort of stuff. But they're taken care of, and 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 so why wouldn't He take care of us? Not a not a statement in favor of laziness. I mean, the birds, you know, work in various ways and so forth. But God provides for them. You know, so we work and we trust the Lord, and uh, He comes. There's another argument I think as to why we shouldn't worry about these things. What's that?
1: God already knows you need it.
0: Okay, that's for sure. You know, God knows we need it. What else? What shows why it's so bad?
1: Even the Gentiles
0: do that. Well, the, the, why, why is it that the Gentiles would worry about those things? They don't... That's all they've got. Exactly. They don't know about a good, generous, heavenly father who will take care of them. I think that's the thing about them. What would you expect? They are going to worry... They don't have a trust in God. But if we worry about those things, what does that say about us? We don't trust God. And and it would be like a small child not trusting his parents to take care of him. That's very demeaning to the parents. You know, so don't have pagan attitudes about this. And then he simply says in verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, And all these things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom. That is seek his rule over your life. Seek his righteousness. Seek to live according to his will. And thus be righteous. And when that's your worry. When that's your quest. When that's your goal. Then God will take you. Give you the other things. You know what we need to pursue is the Lord and his will not pursue how am I gonna eat and how am I going to you know clothe myself or whatever myself or whatever we need to trust the Lord more that is a hard thing we like to control we like we don't want to do anything until we've got you know cash reserves in the bank to to no end and you know whatever and well uh, we just really don't want to have to trust <laughs> and if we seek the Lord he'll take care of us um. Um. Don't worry about tomorrow, he says. for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, isn't, isn't worrying about tomorrow the last resort of an anxious soul? You know, if there's not enough problems today, borrow some from tomorrow and worry about them. <laughs> you know, sometimes we're just bound to determine to worry. Um, but, but he says, you know, uh, there'll, there'll be enough trouble tomorrow to take care of then. <laughs> You know, he's not saying that there won't be troubles. God didn't promise a picnic to everybody in their whole life. uh, But he'll take care of us in those problems. So worry about today or, you know, focus on today. Do what you need to do today. God will take care of tomorrow and you'll have the problems to deal with then that you have to deal with then. It's it's amazing how how, uh, freeing it is to just be able to trust the Lord just try to do what we ought to do that's really the only thing what does god want us to do i mean that's all that we need to worry about you know i mean even things like working and providing uh, we do it because that's what god says and we just try to do it the way he says to them. and really he's the one in control and if he sees fit to uh, bring us down then so be it comments and questions It looks to me like he comes in chapter 7 to some various exhortations uh, particularly in these, this first half of the chapter uh, I think you can see the last half he's really moving toward a conclusion but but these are some other matters that he wants to deal with in the sermon so it's chapter 7 verses 1 to 5
1: do not judge lest you be judged for in the way you judge you will be judged and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you and why do you look at the spec that you go eye but do you